Robin, thank you for coming. Um, and uh, Robin Alders is um, Associate Professor at the Europe, the Charles Perkins Centre here. Um, he's a veterinary scientist who works on many things, including food security, both local and global. So I think the connection between the two is particularly interesting and important. So, Robin. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for the opportunity to come and speak with you today. It is going to be very informal. Um, if you have questions as we go along, just let me know. The talk can expand and contract depending on how we're going for time. Um, but because you are an anthropology department, I thought I'd just share a bit of a story with you. So it's a little bit um, woven into the way I've um, been accumulating information and interests as I've gone along. Firstly, I want to thank the group of people that I've worked with over the years. It's been a wonderful journey. And, uh, and I want to acknowledge building on what um, Stanley said. At the University of Sydney, we're creating um, a theme across the university around food, food systems. So at the moment, um, there, I sit within the Charles Perkins Centre, and there we have a global food and nutrition security um, node. We also link directly now with the Marie Bashir Institute. They have more of an interest on infectious disease biosecurity, so that's more the food safety angle. And the Sydney Environment Institute, which houses many um, social scientists with an interest in this area. And the next thing that we have coming up is on, from the 19th to the 21st of August, where we're going to run a series of events looking at nutrition-sensitive value chains. And it will, the first day we're going to have a look from the global um, situation, what it, what's the current thought globally. And on the second day, we're actually going to apply it to the Australian situation. So what you tend to find within the international literature, a lot of this focuses on undernutrition, a lot of the work in this area. We want to take it and apply it to the Australian situation, whereas, you know, we, we are tackling obesity, another form of um, malnutrition. So, you, if any of you are in town, you're most welcome to join us then. But now my journey starts. So I grew up on a farm, um, largely on the back of a horse. And uh, my idea when I was young was that I was going to be a drover. A drover is a person that takes big mobs, usually of cattle, long distances, eating grass as they go along. Um, but I've ended up working on food security. And, uh, and I did that via vet science. Um, I was came off a very small farm. I was lucky to get to university because in my first year at high school we had a change of government and going to university became a right rather than a privilege. So that I knew if I got good grades at high school I could go on and go to university. So this is um, me here in the first year, vet science. And uh, I was going to be a horse vet, that was my aim. Um, something happened, this is me just a couple of years ago in Tanzania. Um, so I went from wanting to work on horses to working with village chickens. And so really it was my first year at Sydney Uni that helped me make that transition. I stayed at a residential college, I met many international people. And uh, it was an opportunity to understand that the world we live in is not necessarily the fairest of places. So I'm sure most of you are really aware of this, the Human Development Index rank, um, where every year the UN uh, puts out a ranking and tells us which countries are quite doing quite favourably. Um, 
and interestingly we see here that Australia is number two in that ranking. Um, that doesn't coincide with some of the political rhetoric in Australia right now, but there we are at number two. Um, who was, who's number one? Who was number one last year? I guess Switzerland. Close. Very close. Liechtenstein. <laughs> Fascinating, isn't it? It is, yeah. So, right. Okay. Now, I really, I only asked that just to show that when it comes to this particular ranking, um, Australia is ahead of the UK in that, just because the Ashes series is coming up. So just to say that at least at one thing we're ranking higher. So, um, and these are the, the data that gets, I just pulled off five of the, the, the line items that they have within their report. You'll see an enormous um, inequity there in terms of life expectancy. The gender inequity index is really interesting and I like to point this out when I speak at home because this is the one where Norway beats us. So being a wonderfully competitive nation, I would hope that we're going to turn that around. Um, but the really interesting thing for me has been looking at under five mortality and those huge differences across uh, these four countries. Uh, before we go too much further, just so we agree on the definition of food and nutrition security. For many years people only talked about food security, but when the health community went and looked when we were saying we had enough food and yet undernutrition, stunting in children still seemed to be a problem, they kept on having to expand the definition as to what, what is an adequate definition of food security. And now they've gone as far as saying let's talk about food and nutrition security because it's not just about the food, it's about the nutrients in our food that's uh, quite important. And these are the four pillars um, that uh, used to be only three, so food availability, access and utilisation. Stability has been added, particularly since that huge spike in world food prices a couple of years back. And here I've highlighted energy and macro and micronutrients. I do that because often I come from the vet faculty and often when we talk about animal source food, people tend to think only about protein. But in fact, we know that having a balanced diet, it's about the macronutrients, of which protein is one, but also our micronutrients are really quite important. And uh, I've used EcoHealth in the title because for us it's really important um, taking a systems approach to this. How did we get to this situation where, strictly speaking, the world's producing more food than ever before, but we still have significant numbers of people who are both undernourished and now the double burden, people who are obese. So something's clearly going on here. And from our way of working, the eco-health umbrella works very nicely for us because it looks at environmental health, it looks at the health of people, it looks at the health of animals, but it sees a really important role for social scientists because really so much of what we do in this day and age is driven by people and if we don't understand that, then we're going to be um, hard-pressed to actually make any progress. This one I like to show once again because many of the folk with whom I speak in Australia, it's a long time since we've had to think too much about undernutrition. Um, and also working with vets, we would have different terminology. And, and to be honest with you, vets and animal nutrition, we take it very seriously. So this, if 
this would have happened in an animal context. This is an animal welfare issue, and people would be in big trouble if we had to talk about wasting, stunting, underweight to this degree. We know what animals need. We know when they're meant to get a change in diet, depending on age, their reproductive status. So when we move across and we look at information being given to people, we get very surprised at how almost blasé it is in terms of information. But anyway, these are the sad uh, situations, the three on the right. And the interesting thing is here, as I mentioned, it's not just about protein. It is about micronutrients. And this is where it's a really important discussion about how you get those micronutrients in a way that you're able to use them. Um, now going back to our three countries where we're currently working, in terms of stunting in Tanzania, any idea what the current stunting rate is? Relative to what reference? Well, let's do it in percentages. Stunting in under fives. 40%? Yes, absolutely. 40%, way too high. Zambia? Higher or lower? More or less HIV? More. Okay, higher than. Timor Leste, just to the north of Australia. Higher or lower? This is stone's throw from our northern borders. Higher. One of the highest rates of stunting in the world. The other thing that I love to talk about when I'm talking in Australia is about this thousand-day window, that opportunity from conception to two years of age is now seen as a critical period in the life of a child as to whether they're going to reach their potential in terms of um, intellectual ability, physical stature. They now recognise that you need to go back to pre-pregnancy and, and look at the health of the woman, the girl, um, because you never know when you're going to fall pregnant. But I love to show this in Australia because most women, most young women in Australia don't think at all about their diet. They think about their weight. They don't think about um, associated consequences of maybe not having a balanced diet. But what you eat and when you eat is really quite crucial. And so I've worked in international development for over 20 years. And for much of that time, food security, as I say, has been discussed. And a lot of the emphasis has been on the staple crops, maize, wheat, rice. At the end of the Second World War, the challenge was how do we make sure that we're going to at least get enough of the staples so that people won't go hungry anymore. There's been enormous advances. We've had the Green Revolution, so quantity being produced has increased significantly. But what we've found in some uh, countries that even though the quantity of food has improved, nutrition hasn't necessarily followed. Having more crops hasn't necessarily reduced stunting in children. And uh, as I mentioned before, stunting has long-term serious consequences. So from that time of conception up to two years, you are not, the mother is not, doesn't have access to a balanced diet, that child will not develop their full intellectual capacity. They will not be as physically robust. And World Bank studies have shown that their earning capacity over the lifetime is greatly reduced. Um, 
to the point where the World Bank says it's having a significant impact on economies, and it's cumulative. So the problem is once you've hit two and, and you're behind, you're not going to get any better, and you're, the chances that you will pass that on to the next generation are greatly increased. And you know this also from your research on obesity, you're seeing that inter intergenerational uh, implications of what's going on here. So there's been a lot of talk about crops, but my background, I, I did grow up on a farm and we raised sheep and cattle, so it was all about um, livestock and we had vegetable gardens for our own needs. But what's rarely discussed uh, in any depth is that animal source food um, is really quite crucial in the human diet. We've evolved to the point that if we don't have vitamin B12 in our diet from an animal source product, we have to take a supplement. So people who choose to be vegan, not to eat any animal source food at all, have to have a supplement of vitamin B12. In terms of crucial um, micronutrients such as vitamin A or iron, animal source food is often is the only preformed, so it's ready to go. As soon as you ingest it and digest it, you're able, your body's able to use it. For vitamin A and iron from a plant source food, it has to be transformed in your body, so it takes a little bit extra time and energy to do that. If we look at a comparison here, and this I'm taking from Lindsay Allen, who works at the University of California, she's put a table together showing um, very nicely uh, the comparison of different sources of meat, milk and eggs, and what they offer you. And as I looked at this, it makes perfect sense in the West. This table is excellent for the West. From where I work, uh, or have had the privilege of working in sub-Saharan Africa, what struck me here though was this one, where we're saying meat has zero calcium. But for the work that I've done with village chickens, what we know is that if that chicken pays the sacrifice and does get eaten, everything gets used. So the muscles get used, the gizzard gets used, the liver gets used, and the bones. So often the, the legs, are actually given to young children. And when I first went, I used to think, hmm, this doesn't look so good, you know, just giving the, the legs to the children while, while the man gets to eat the gizzard and some of the fleshier parts. But in fact, the legs have calcium. They also have the bone marrow, so they're actually quite a good source of iron as well. So it's sometimes when we're looking at situations and seeing, thinking about where nutrients come from, our particular shall we say, very selective way of eating in the West is not necessarily helping us to think about where people might be getting their nutrients from. But, but it's only a recent perspective. A hundred years ago or so, we'd have been thinking in similar ways anyway. Absolutely. And, and so that's what excites me at home when I go back. Some of the work that we're going to do in Australia, as an aside, mm -hmm. um, we now have the push to eat only the nicest cuts of meat and to eat young animals. So that push to eat um, vealers or uh, veal or to eat um, lamb is also relatively recent. During the war there weren't enough sheep so they kept, they started to send younger animals to meet um, the meat requirements. Prior to that we ate a lot more mutton and, and we ate the offal. Now to find uh, you know the liver, that sort of thing in butchers in Australia, it's very hard. It's shown uh, recipe books in Italy, 19th century recipe books that had over 100 recipes for all the things you don't eat anymore. 
Well, and she was taken to a restaurant where we ate all the bits of the chicken that you don't normally eat. Yes, so. and they're quite tasty, aren't they? So we, we have a, a student who will be starting soon to, to look at that as it is an aside, but as we know with climate change and changing uh, climate and weather variability, our stocking rates of animals in Australia will have to go down because we won't be sure that those um, rainfall patterns will be as they were. And so if we are going to run sheep and, and produce wool, at the end of that sheep's life, there's a lot of that animal that can actually um, be a very good source of, of nutrients. We have uh, vulnerable communities in Australia who say they can no longer afford to buy their good cuts of steak. Well, the good news is they don't have to. You know, there are other, other cuts that are now relatively low in price um, that will help to sustain them. So, I, you know, it is, it's a very short period. I don't know how things changed so quickly and got so distorted away from a, a, a system that did provide us with um, good nutrition for such a long period. And having said that, as I was um, in the UK for these last couple of weeks, I've really been interested in the discussions. Meat Free Monday, it's also happening in Australia. The, you know, the, the thought that we're maybe part of the problem is that we eat too much meat. It could be the problem is we're not eating the right balance that we're having. We're not, rather than using the whole carcass that across the carcass has a nutrient balance similar to the composition of our bodies. Our selectiveness is part of the problem. So this uh, is very interesting, Neat Free Monday. And uh, it sort of, I thought, would be the link into what it is that I'm doing. So this idea that we'd have one day a week where we don't eat meat. Well, there are many people in the world who can't remember the last time they did eat meat. So it would be great if for them we could think about maybe having one day a week um, where they might get some animal source food. So back to my story, how did I get involved? I did my PhD at a medical research institute in immunology, um, but I discovered that the sort of um, medical research community was a pretty tough arena, and I'd also had, uh, I'd had long links with Oxfam and grown uh, increasingly interested in international development. So as soon as I finished my PhD, I actually went to the University of Zambia and I worked on a local contract for three years uh, at a new vet school. And uh, what I discovered there uh, was that in most of Eastern and Southern Africa, most people don't have cattle. So that's what I'd learnt about in Australia. I'd learnt about small ruminants, sheep. Most people also don't have goats. But almost everyone um, has some village chickens. And the other interesting thing going over the top of this in terms of household dynamics and asset ownership is that ruminants are usually men's business and village chickens are frequently the only livestock over which women um, will have some control. So from wanting to be a horse vet to doing immunology, I've now ended up working um, with village chickens for the last 20 years or so. And the other important thing um, is to appreciate how different the village chicken is from these pale, fleshy things that we now eat um, in the West. Family poultry is a term that incorporates three main different production systems. It can have chickens and muscovy ducks, pigeons, a whole range of animals. But what's important is to look at the production system under which those birds are raised. So there's the extensive system, and that's the system that I usually work with. 
You have semi-intensive, where the birds will get a little bit more supplementary feeding, and then intensive. And as you move from left to right, the inputs required are increased, and the risks to the owner are also increased. Um, I, so this is Mozambique, this is Tanzania, this is Laos. Um, any idea what this fellow is doing here? Clearly he's not laying any eggs. He is. So he's there specifically to keep the hens happy. So it's not just that he happened to be around. He's allowed to be around by the owner because the owner believes that his job is to make the hens in the cages a little happier. And because it's so nice to be in an anthropology department, I could actually add this slide that talks about chickens and people. They've had such an intimate life. They were domesticated a long time ago. Some people say even before the dog being domesticated from the wolf. And if you look at the whole range of breeds that are out there now with chickens, that's all about us. They came from the jungle fowl. We've done the selective breeding to the point where with our commercial birds today is that if we disappeared, so would that breed because they can't reproduce naturally. Um, they, the hens have lost the ability to go broody, so they might lay the egg, but that egg then has to be hatched um, artificially for it to continue to exist. So very intimate link there. And there are some um, groups who actually use chicken DNA to, to map human migration around the world. You can see events where chickens have travelled with people on boats overland um, to new parts of the world. Um, and this is really important to understand that it is, I, I, my talk is much about food and nutrition security, but for the people that raise these birds, there's another dimension there. It is about self. It is about proving that you're able to raise animals and to, um, to have this close link with them. And that association is overwhelmingly positive. And that was missed during some of the avian influenza control programs where they couldn't understand why people did not want to follow the instructions about we need to kill your birds because they may be infected. Um, but understanding what motivates people and those long linkages is actually really crucial when we do this work. So it is about food and nutrition security, but it's also about something very much more. Uh, they fill niches that many other livestock don't. They contribute to food security, poverty alleviation, as we mentioned, often the only livestock under the control of women. For the Millennium Development Goals, it improved village poultry production, could really talk to all eight of them. For the sustainable, uh, sustainable Development Goals, village chickens will be in there again um, if they're given the opportunity. Uh, HIV AIDS mitigation and wildlife, I'll touch on a little bit further down the track. Um, but a lot of people look at the birds and they say it's a small bird, it's very unproductive, it doesn't lay a lot of eggs because it lays the eggs, then it sits on the eggs and it hatches the eggs and it takes care of the chicks. But in terms of input, she's really efficient because there are almost zero inputs required from the farmer's side. And if you can get the bird to market or if you can get the egg to market, you'll get a higher price. Almost everywhere in the world, consumers will pay more for that uh, product. And what's important here is to say that there's no direct competition with commercial production. Where these birds are produced, you could not raise commercial birds efficiently because to do the commercial production, you have to have a balanced ration 
you've got quality day old chicks, everything's got to be vaccinated for an increasing number of diseases. And if you can't meet all of that, temperature, water, they don't survive. They're very finicky, very precise in what they need. Whereas the village chicken um, pretty much does much for herself in terms of labour and capital. She finds her own feed. About 70% of producing commercial poultry is the cost of the feed that has to be taken to those poultry sheds. Whereas the village chicken will go and find her own feed. She eats things we'd never dream of eating and turns them into something quite delicious. They get away from predators, including two-legged predators sometimes. They do go broody, so they'll be able to hatch the next uh, batch of chickens. In most cases, there's often traditional um, healthcare provided to them. The birds are very important, and if they don't have access to Western medicine, they will, people will do what they can to try and keep their birds alive. So in terms of benefit-cost ratio, it drives the livestock health economists mad, but these are one of the most efficient producers because you get a quality output for very little input uh, per bird. In terms of rural households, they fill a really important niche. Um, if you look here, uh, any idea what this one's up to here? Could be flies, bugs, could actually be moisture because sometimes they don't even get water provided for them, they have to find their own. But there is a nice relationship between the cattle and the birds that you'll find the prevalence of tick-borne diseases is lower in cattle where there are chickens because they do eat the ticks. So it's a nice relationship there. They're really important uh, for petty cash, for food, pest control, uh, manure if there are vegetable gardens, but also social um, rituals. If a very important guest comes, then it's the chicken that uh, is um, used to show your esteem for your visitor. You can also give a live chicken to a guest to take with them. Um, grandparents will use a chicken to give to a grandchild to see, to let them test their luck, to see if they're going to be a good farmer. So um, it has many um, functions in sub-Saharan Africa, traditional uh, healers will use them in ritual ceremonies um, to, and they will be able to see, depending on how the bird dies, it depends which area you're in, but the colour of the bird, the, the sex of the bird and that um, process of its ritual um, slaughter uh, is, can be an important part there. And as I mentioned, often the only asset in terms of animals that uh, women and children have some control over. In terms of the product that doesn't require the ultimate sacrifice from the bird, though Stanley and I at least will remember the days when eggs were really given a hard time because they're high in cholesterol, really bad for you. Well, that wasn't completely the case. They've now decided that that, the, that information was possibly not correct. The trials that were done originally in the chimpanzees would have meant eating over 100 eggs a day to have an equivalent level of cholesterol. Most of us don't do that. Um, and eggs are in fact a fantastic product. They have, in a very small space, you get high protein micronutrients that can fit into the stomach of a small child. So it's a nutrient dense food. It's uh, easy to cook. It's sterile inside, so if it's quick and easy to cook, it means the woman doesn't have to fetch as much fuel to cook. And uh, as I mentioned, nutritious in small quantities. 
in terms of improving village chickens, when you've got a system that's this efficient, that the birds are there, you know, even with um, the, the high mortality that they do face, you have to be very efficient about what you're offering people so that it fits with their mixed farming lifestyle, so that it doesn't increase labour costs or labour commitments or financial commitments too much. And it needs to fit with their other activities when they're planting, um, harvesting. The main constraint for the village poultry in most countries is Newcastle disease. It belongs to the same family as measles in people or distemper in dogs. But for the chicken, unfortunately, she's very susceptible. So if you get a hot strain of Newcastle disease, it can kill 80 to 100% of birds. And this happens once to twice a year in most countries where the disease is endemic. This table shows just a very, an absolute underestimate of the impact of this disease for each country. If you can get a chicken to market now, most places she's getting $5 to $12. In the lead up to Christmas, it can be a lot more. That's a lot of money, but it hasn't really been taken seriously. In the developed world, a lot of vet services have tended to focus on the ruminants. Um, up until very recently, our profession was a very male-dominated profession, and it's tended to be that men have focused on their prestige animal, which has tended to be the cow or uh, small ruminants. In the early 1980s, uh, my mentor, Peter Spradbro, um, had some, received funding from the Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research to look at strains of Newcastle disease that circle in Australia that didn't cause disease. And the interesting thing about these strains is that they were thermostable, thermotolerant. They didn't need to be kept constantly cold. So the short story is that Peter was able to work with a range of these strains, select one that was going to be useful as a vaccine. And with time, there are now two strains that are selected, one you can buy commercially, and one the master seed is made available to countries if they want to produce the vaccine themselves. And it was selected for heat stability, so it, a wet vaccine can hold its activity, its potency, up to two weeks, so long as it's kept under 30 degrees. And that's completely transformed um, the control of Newcastle disease in villages. Most of the commercial vaccines have to be held between two and eight degrees. It's, a, it's absolutely required. So that meant that the commercial vaccines couldn't be used in villages. So um, it's research that's gone on for over 20 years. It, results in a vaccination program that's done in conjunction with communities. Good for the chickens, because the chickens die in their millions each year if you don't vaccinate. Great for their owner. Um, what we know is that women that's, resources that are under the control of women are much more likely to be used for education and nutrition of children. And I guess that's where, um, for the men in the audience, I'd like to think that's a new area of research because if this is what the big data is telling us, the question is why? Because you'd think it would be something that all members of the household would see as a good goal. Um, uh, we know that if women are better educated, they're likely to have fewer children, but for them to be able to do that as well, they need to know that their children are going to have the best chance of surviving. And a key take-home message here is that things like this don't come around quickly. It took 
20 years of working with a veterinary virologist all the way through to working with anthropologists to get a package that was going to be sustainable. As I mentioned, it is a community-based vaccination program um, and it's done on cost recovery. So farmers pay a small fee for each bird vaccinated. That provides income for the vaccinator and the vaccinator is also then able to keep buying the vaccine. The vaccine can then continue to be produced in the local laboratories. It's fun work, really, once it gets going. Um, building the capacity in the lab, helping them to get their vaccines registered, helping everyone to understand the various steps, the importance of quality and assurance. For many years, vaccine would simply be brought into a country. They couldn't test it to see whether it had been properly stored. Then they'd put money into buying the vaccine, paying per diems, having the vaccine to go out, only to find that the commercial vaccine had been inactivated because of poor storage. So um, the focus on village chickens has had a benefit across the industry because the labs that produce the vaccine can also test imported vaccine to, see that, to confirm that it's still potent. I mentioned that uh, we've been invited, we were invited by the FAO to work with them in Mozambique to improve village chicken production in an area where there was a significant proportion of households affected by HIV AIDS. The reason village chickens are so important is that they don't need a lot of labour and they don't compete with people for food. So if you've got a household that has a labour shortage, you know, taking cattle or goats out to pasture, can really put a pressure on the household, whereas village chickens just take care of themselves pretty much. Um, in the program that it was reviewed, it, the program was found to actually have a triple benefit in that it directly supported the affected households. We trained the voluntary carers within the community to become the vaccinators, so they then got an income for their services. For the first two campaigns, we had a voucher system so that those most vulnerable households didn't pay. But by the time the third one came around, they were expected to contribute as well because their bird numbers um, should have uh, increased. And this third part was what was shocking for me. Uh, as a vet, we're used to talking about carrying capacity in terms of pasture and animals. And to talk about communities in terms of carrying capacity and to understand the impact of HIV AIDS and how a community could absorb um, orphans was actually quite shocking for us, but um, these are things that we had to get used to. In terms of um, wildlife conservation, some of the, when I first started working in Zambia, there were people within those communities who could still remember before the parks had been created. So parks were created, people were pushed out, and uh, there are quite strict regulations about what you can and can't do in the parks. Frequently, this particular area where this photo is taken is a tsetse area, so it wasn't good for raising cattle. And so some of the communities were not travelling very well. So in order to reduce the need um, to hunt for bushmeat, we were asked by Kamako to introduce Newcastle Disease Control, um, which is still ongoing there, I'm pleased to say. But uh, for my time in Zambia, I uh, always remember a, a driver, Mr. Bander, that I spent a lot of time with. He was always fascinated 
and I asked him a lot of questions as we travelled. So he was very interested that sort of this idea that a wild animal could actually be beautiful. And so I'll never forget his words. Very simple. So that's just a, a snapshot of my journey from farming to food security. And uh, the take home message is that I learned that it didn't, doesn't really matter which came first. You need both the chicken and the egg. And you need both men and women to tackle the complex problems that we have in our world. Thank you. Thank you.